0: Heavenly Father, we have already seen your goodness, your greatness, your mercy displayed before us today, both in the words that we have sung, in the visible sermon, as Phil said, of your body and blood broken and shed for us. And now we come to hear from you, and we pray that your goodness would extend to us now in this time, that we would hear from you, that we receive what you have to say to us, And that we would praise you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Does God love you today? Amen. All right, we can go home. No, I'm just kidding. What do you think? Seriously, does God really love you? Or are you too much of a disappointment? Have you messed things up too badly? Have you done enough to be lovable or to keep yourself Lovable. In our daily lives and struggles, it can be so easy to doubt that God does indeed love us, to forget the truth. We sometimes imagine that God's love is like our love, conditional, fickle. (laughs) Or we think, even if we wouldn't speak this, our actions tell another story, we think we have to earn his love, that it depends on us, and forgetting that we don't love in order to make him love us, we love because he first loved us. And so, in the midst of our challenges and compromises and weaknesses, we sometimes worry or even often worry if God is still for us, or if we have turned him away from us. For good. Today we're going to look at a passage that speaks the truth into our emotions and doubts. I believe it's almost like our Father in heaven shouts his reassurance to us here. The words are so strong that they can even seem controversial or offensive at times. But that's not God's intent here, He means to deeply encourage us to lift up our heads so that our hearts are filled up with his love and we overflow in praise. All right, so please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 if you haven't already. Ephesians 1, which we introduced last week. Ephesians is a, a greatly treasured book of the Bible for many and with good reason. It speaks in in grand expansive truth about God's glorious plan for the universe. But then it brings it down to earth and shows how we fit into these plans through Jesus. Last week we read just the prologue, which introduced it this way, this letter this way. It said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, that's who wrote this, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we meditated on the amazing grace and peace that God blesses us with in Christ, it made us want to praise the Lord. Which is precisely what Paul does next. Verse 3 launches into an epic outburst of praise. Look, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Before I go on, let me mention that verse 3 is the beginning of one long, run-on sentence. Going from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. Over... 200 words, both in Greek and English. You now, English, we've separated it some into different sentences, but that's the original text. One long thought. One scholar calls it the most monstrous sentence conglomeration that I have ever found in the Greek language. <laughs> so, I'm warning you. I'm about to break a rule of preaching by splitting this up over three different sermons. But there's so much richness in Ephesians that we're going to often have to break it into small pieces in order to really grasp and appreciate what it says. So, Paul starts off, we saw, by praising God the Father of Jesus. He isn't just telling us to praise God, he's actually praising Him right here. He's ascribing praise to to the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember verse 2 called God our Father. This So this is both Jesus and our Father. But there's a couple of things, even in this first line, that I think we need to address right at the start, lest they distract us as we go on. One is that we get confused when God is called the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there seems to be a a distinction between Jesus and God, as if Jesus were not God. But that's not what this meant. This is not meant as a theological statement on Jesus' deity or not. This verse really is only referring to Christ in his humanity. Remember, Jesus is both God and man. You underestimate one of them and it becomes heresy. We don't understand everything about how that worked, but Jesus didn't hesitate. We see in his life stories he didn't hesitate to claim to be God, nor did he hesitate to pray to and praise his Father in Heaven. So he is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. That addresses the the confusing part of that opening line. Now for the potentially bothersome part. When thinking of God as a Father our main frame of reference tends to be our own fathers. Our physical, earthly dads usually shape our view of God the Father for better or worse. And so, if our father is or was unloving, indifferent, absent, or abusive... It's hard to picture having a father who is loving, caring, present, or nurturing. However, when we see things this way, we really get things totally backwards. As author Michael Reeves explains, he says, Not everyone instinctively warms to the idea that God is a father. There are many for whom their their own experiences of overbearing, indifferent, or abusive fathers make their very guts squirm when they hear God spoken of as a father. One's heart goes out to the children of such fathers, and those of us who are fathers ourselves know that we are too far from perfect. But God the Father is not called Father because he copies earthly fathers. He is not some pumped-up version of your dad. To transfer the failings of earthly fathers to him is quite simply a misstep. Indeed, things are the other way around. It is that all human fathers are supposed to reflect him. Only where some do that well, others do a better job of reflecting the devil. (laughs) Really, it's imperative that we learn to approach God as our truest father. Father that's who he is. And Paul's not really worried about these concerns that we have as he writes this passage. He's only concerned that God gets praise for who he is and what he's done. Look again at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice the, the repetition of blessed, blessed, and blessing. Here's the main point of the verse. Okay, The Father has given every spiritual blessing to us in Christ. The Father has given every spiritual blessing to us who are in Christ Jesus. And last week, we talked about believers being in Christ or being united with Christ. There's a tree in our yard that hangs over our driveway and where we park our van. And every now and then, I have to trim back the branches of the tree. Otherwise, they grow and droop low enough that they hit our heads or block our van from parking. Now, I could point this out to you and say the branches are overhanging the driveway. Or, I could also say, the tree is overhanging the driveway. Both of these are true. Why? Because the the branches are part of the tree. They're in the tree. They are organically connected to the tree, and the tree's life flows out to them. Now, When I cut off a branch, I can't say, I cut off the tree. There's still a distinction between tree and branch. Similarly, we are not the same thing as Christ, but we are like a branch growing out of him. We are intimately connected to him as our source of life. And when God sees us, he sees the whole tree. We're in Christ now. And this is what Paul is getting at here. Look at the words, in Christ. Look for them. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything flows to us through Christ. It's only in our union with him that we're blessed. Without him, we're like a a broken off dead branch lying on the ground. So thank God that's no longer the case. We are now deeply and eternally blessed through Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You might ask, What good are blessings in heavenly places here on earth? may sound like it's saying, God has given us all kinds of blessings, but they're inaccessible to you right now. In heaven. But no. See, heavenly places here is a term that actually refers to just the spiritual realm all around us. Spiritual realm. It's almost like another dimension you could picture it as. One commentator compares it to radio waves, which fly around us constantly. Or maybe today you'd think of, of cellular or Wi Fi waves. We just don't yet have our tuners or our routers set to receive the signal. Yet. So, heavenly places isn't just referring to some heavenly geography out beyond the stars. It's talking about the spiritual realm that lies behind the veil of this physical universe. Believers, it says, have been blessed there because Jesus is there and we're united to him. Through the Father's blessings, we have been forever linked to heaven. And heaven's blessings are not just for the future, but for right now. Kent Hughes explains The heavenly places are the immaterial reign, the unseen universe which lies behind the world of sense, the place of Christ's throne where we are enthroned with him. Temporarily, we live here on earth, but spiritually, we live in the heavenly realms where Christ lives. Paul calls us to immerse ourselves in this truth and to celebrate. So, immerse yourself in this. All right, your... Heavenly Father has given you a few nice blessings? No. He's given you many wonderful blessings? No, that's still not right. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. That's a a summary statement. It's not specific, so it can be hard to, to picture what it means. But over the next 11 verses, Paul will list some of the most prominent of these blessings, one after the other after the other. But basically, everything we receive through Christ could be included in that phrase, every spiritual blessing. So you think about it. We have love and mercy, grace, forgiveness, peace, hope, Joy, purpose, guidance, access to heaven, power, restoration, satisfaction, vindication, life, eternal glory, and so much more. All because we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Psalm 84.11 tells us, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And listen, no one has walked more uprightly than Jesus. Hence, the Father withholds no good thing from those of us who are in his Son. Now, now, if you're like me, the truth that God is Father, Son, and Spirit a three-in-one triune is confusing, if not incomprehensible. We just don't get it, let alone see the reason or the beauty behind it. On one level, it's okay to not fully understand the Trinity. God is beyond our highest thoughts. But I I recently read a book, a great book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. I believe it's Pastor Kenny's favorite book, so he would recommend it even more highly than I would. But I found it so refreshing and encouraging and beautiful, as it shows not only why God existing as a Trinity is absolutely necessary, but also how God existing as Father, Son, and Spirit is totally beautiful. It really is a beautiful thing. So again, that's Delighting in the Trinity" by Michael Reeves. you can look it up. For today, listen to how he explains why God is described as a father. It says this: "The father is called father because he is a father. And a father is a person who gives life, who begets children. Now that insight is like a stick of dynamite in all our thoughts about God. For if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. From eternity he has been life-giving. To be a father then means to love, to give out life, to beget the Son. Before anything else, for all eternity, this God was loving, giving life to, and delighting in his Son. Do you get what that's saying? Like, God is inherently life-giving, outgoing, loving. And so, if he is that, inherently, from eternity past, he must have eternally had an object of that life and love. that's a son and it's out of the overflow of the father's life and love that we're then created now have we shown ourselves to be worthy recipients of such lavish love (laughs) no that's why it's grace undeserved favor undeserved blessings. We wonder, why would God still love us even after we spurned his blessings? Why would he do that? And the answer is that his love is not dependent on our response. It preceded ours. Today we'll see a couple of the really astonishing spiritual blessings we have in Christ. And the first one is that, that the Father initiated his eternal love for us in Christ. It came first to restate that he loved us first, and his love goes way back. The Father initiated his eternal affections, or love, for us in Christ. Look how Paul says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, according to this, when did God start loving his people? Before they were born? No. Before the world was born. This is really the love of a good father, right? When my wife conceived my children, it was an amazing thing. I instantly felt a love for someone that I had never seen before. I wouldn't even see them for months after that. My love for them grew until they were born, and then it expanded even more. Now, on a, a hard note, like they, this is why miscarriages hurt so much for those who have experienced them, because you've already begun to love long before the child would be born. A God, the father's love surpasses even this kind of instinctual prenatal love. First, Because it wasn't an instinct. It was a choice. It was natural for him to love, but the Bible is clear that he chose to do so with us. He didn't need to. And secondly, he chose to set his love on us long before we even existed. Before my kids were conceived, I couldn't love them. I knew I would, but I didn't. Like they weren't there for me to love. Couldn't conceive of them. But God, who is not bound by space or time, knew everything about us before creation. And he had us in mind and settled his love on us even then. God didn't start to love us when Jesus died for us. That just demonstrated his eternal love. God's love blazed into existence before the sun and stars blazed into being. Now, I know that talking about God choosing us raises all kinds of questions in our minds. Theologically speaking, this refers to what we call election. Not the election this week. Different kind. God chooses us. The next verse in Ephesians that we're going to look at also talks about predestination. And these ideas confuse us, worry us, because we feel like we chose to follow the Lord. So if God chose us and predestined us, we wonder if we have any free will in the matter. We worry also about those who, uh, that God doesn't choose or we worry that we might be one of them. I don't have time to answer all our questions today, but here's, really, this is a whole sermon on to its own. But I'll give you a few things to think about, keep in mind here. Okay, First, the Bible is explicitly clear that God is sovereign and that man, the people, are responsible. So, God is in control over history. He is intricately involved in every person's life. He's working in your life, and he's guiding history toward his desired ends. And at the very same time, mankind's freedom is not canceled out. We do make real choices and affect real causes and face real consequences. We don't understand everything about how this plays out, much like with the Trinity or the Incarnation. But we can affirm that there is often more than one will at play in any given situation. That God is sovereign and man is still making choices. I like what songwriter Matt Papa says about this. He says, man is responsible, God is sovereign, believe both, and you can wake up in the morning with purpose and go to bed at night with peace. Second, we must acknowledge that on our own, we could never save ourselves. And that on our own, we would never choose God's way over our own way. Yes, from our limited human perspective, it can seem like we chose God, but God knows better. He knows what came first. We weren't there Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's kind of like the story I once heard of a little girl who got hopelessly lost in the woods. don't know if it's a true story, but it's a good illustration. This little girl gets lost. She panicked, called out, screamed for someone to hear, but no one heard her. Eventually, she collapsed to the ground, exhausted, and fell asleep. Meanwhile, her father was searching for her for hours, all through the night. And when he finally found her the next morning, she was still fast asleep. As he ran up to her, he called out her name, her eyes popped open, she looks up and immediately squealed, Daddy, I found you! (laughs) We were more than just asleep when God found us. Ephesians is going to tell us we were dead. Kent Hughes puts it well, says we must never allow our subjective experience of choosing Christ to water down the fact that we would not have chosen him if he had not first chosen us. The doctrine of election presents us with a God who defies finite analysis. It lets God be God. We can admit that the first step in our salvation is a step that we didn't take. It was all God's move, and God's choice, and God's grace, and God's love. So praise God. Third, about those who are not chosen, we wonder, how can this be fair? And this is a tough question that deserves a much longer response than I'll give it today. But the simple answer is, no, it's not fair. It's not fair that God would love or choose anyone. But aren't you glad he does? fair and you wouldn't have been chosen. It's not fair that I could wholeheartedly reject God and have Him love me anyway. It's not fair that every single human being is not damned forever. What is entirely fair is that those who utterly reject God will live without Him. It's not fair that Jesus suffered and died in my place. In your place. And that's what makes it grace. See, election, when we talk about these, it's not an act of of unfair exclusion. It's an act of gracious inclusion. If you're a believer in Christ, he chose you you, of all people, us. Does that not just. Who am I to receive that kind of love? And that plays into the very purpose that Paul was writing these words in Ephesians. Look again, he says verse 4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Our election and predestination presented here as negative or positive things. Overwhelmingly positive, right? Do these sound like things that should worry us or make us worship? Does it seem like Paul is bludgeoning people over the head with God's sovereignty? (laughs) T-U-L-I-F! Or is he wanting us to fall to our knees in awe? Brian Chapel explains that the message of God's love preceding our accomplishments and outlasting our failures, actually, look at that again, preceding our accomplishments, outlasting our failures, was meant to give us a profound sense of confidence and security in God's love so that we will not despair in situations of great difficulty, pain, and shame. That's why this is here, to give us confidence in God, to inspire us to worship God, and to lead us to trust God. And I don't know if you noticed what Paul gave as the reason that God chose us here. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless Before him. In other words, love might choose us and find us as we are, but it doesn't leave us there. We may be chosen and secure, but that doesn't mean we can just live however we like. The Father initiated his eternal love in Christ, and that love is a hallowing, purifying, transforming love. The reason that you have been loved and saved by God is to become holy in his sight. From one one angle, you already are holy, as we saw last week. We are saints. From another, we're meant to grow in holiness, to be sanctified until the day we are made entirely blameless before his throne. I mean, are you ever ashamed of your behavior? the way you're living your life? I know I certainly am. At least when I stop long enough to think about it. And this world, I tell you, will try to shame you for just about anything, every chance it gets. But, in God's sight, ultimately the only one who will truly matter, things are different now. As Chapel says, God no longer blames us for what shames us. The holiness that God requires, he also supplies, not by our works, but by our union with his Holy Son, who shares with us his own status of holiness. This is cause for amazement. God sees me as being as holy as his own Son. We are chosen that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is God's ultimate desire for all people and we invariably fall short. So he chose us to be, the, so we would become holy because we couldn't become holy on our own. And he sent his son to live a holy life and then die taking our blame in our place. I hope you realize just how unfathomably loved you are today by your Father in Heaven. No matter who you are, what you've done, He made a way for you to lose your shame. Lose your blame. He made a a way for you to be clean, forgiven, free, and forgiven through Jesus. So if you haven't already, I pray, I hope that you would turn to Jesus to save you today. Please come talk with us or, or message us or talk to the person who you came with. As we sang earlier, oh come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. Okay. Okay. That's one spiritual blessing God has given us in Christ. (laughs) He initiated his saving love. The second key blessing we're going to see here is probably just as astounding. See, he doesn't just welcome us into his kingdom as purified citizens or servants. That would be great enough. He welcomes us into his home as his cherished kids. Look again, at the very tail end of verse 4, it says, "...in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will." And so we see that the Father formed his forever family out of us in Christ. The Father was pleased. It made him happy to form his family, his forever family, out of us in Christ. By the way, the words in love there, you might have seen start before verse 5. It's because we're not sure which sentence it really belongs to. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. It's all one long thought. All of this is done in love. But in this case, it says he, he predestined us in love. He set our destiny in advance. And again, predestination can seem like a scary thing. But in the Bible, it's glorious. And God's love is what led him to do this. And we're predestined for adoption. Adoption. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, he's not excluding ladies there, saying only men are adopted as sons. This was a reference to the form of adoption practiced in the Roman world. Whenever someone adopted a child in the Roman Empire, male or female, they became a son, which was a legal term. It's a term that that ensured that they would officially enjoy all of the privileges, rights, obligations, and inheritance of any natural-born children. So, you wouldn't be allowed to... Favor your biological kids over adopted ones at all. They would be considered just as much part of the family. And eventually, they'd receive an equal share of the inheritance. Now, question Who is God the Father's only naturally begotten child? God the Son, Jesus Christ which means if we are now sons of God this is, this is mind blowing if we're now sons of God we are welcomed into his household but more than that we will be treated like Jesus deserves to be treated Like we're not second class children of God we're united to his son. So we can call him Father or Abba and pray to him as our Father, knowing that he cares for us. Like any good parent, God will actively love us as his children, nourishing, nurturing, disciplining, training us until we bear his family resemblance. Why would God go through all of this to adopt losers like us into his family? Look, it says. It says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Other translations say, according to his good pleasure, or will. God took pleasure in planning out his forever family. This is what he wanted all along. He wanted it. like He doesn't stumble upon us as destitute orphans on the side of a road and take pity on us. He seeks us out. He chooses us when he doesn't need to. And he delights in bringing us home. Have you you sensed what an honor it is to be adopted by God the Father, the Creator and King of the universe? Or, brother or sister, have you begun to take your privileged position for granted? I hope these words wake us up to who we are and how blessed we are in God's eyes now. And in response to God's blessings, we should then be led to bless him in return. And we shouldn't only bless God for his gifts to us. We worship because he is worthy, period. But at the same time, the Father is by nature always giving. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And being blessed by him should always lead us to praise. verse 6 brings us full circle for today even though paul is far from done look at it it says in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through jesus christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved so the end goal of this passage what god wants most from us here is not our obedience or our endurance or our repentance, though those are always good things, He wants our praise, our hearts' worship. For us to to join in the eternal song, glorifying His grace, He has done what we could never do. And so, bless the Father for His glorious grace to us in Christ. Let us bless the Lord our Father in heaven for his glorious grace to us in Christ. And really, praising God has been the whole point, the whole applicational point of this passage all along. Look back at verse 3, where it said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then we saw he chose us in Christ, he's making us holy in Christ, and he loved us in Christ, and he adopted us in Christ, all, verse 6, to the praise of God. Of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Like, there's a, a reason that we put worship God as our number one mission as a church. Like, yes, we are meant to grow together and to serve others as the church of Christ, but all of these flow out of hearts that are united around the worship and praise of God. First and foremost, this is all to the praise of his. Glorious grace with which he has blessed us. We talked a lot about grace last week. Paul brings it back up here when it says that he has blessed us with grace. The word he uses is literally grace as a verb. So he has graced or be graced us with grace. So praise him for his grace. (laughs) Grace. Paul calls it his glorious grace here, which means it reflects God's glory and character. God's choice of people like us to be his children arises from his grace, and the final goal of this is that it would resound to the praise of his grace. So you see, God is both the origin and the goal of salvation. And again, we see that this only comes to us through Jesus. We are blessed in the Beloved. In the Beloved. Maybe Paul says that just so he doesn't have to repeat, in Christ again. Not really. In the Beloved just hammers home the point of how much we are loved by the Father. Because Jesus is his, capital B, Beloved Son. The same language is used at Jesus' baptism, baptism and his transfiguration. But in Christ, like we've seen, we are shockingly loved as much as Jesus. We are beloved in the beloved. We're tempted to water that down. It can't be that strong. We can't. It's right there. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we are. Author Daniel Taylor tells a story that I've shared before. It's worth sharing again from when he was in grade six in the 1950s. He says that in his school, they taught all the kids the basics of square dancing. Not the usual subject you see today. But the boys would all line up and then take turns picking a girl to be their dance partner. And Taylor describes the scene, says the girl, as the girls were chosen, they left their desk and joined the snot nosed kid who had honored them with his favor. Believe me, the boys did not like doing this. Think of you in grade six. But think about those girls. Think about waiting to get picked. Think about worrying that you'd get picked by someone you couldn't stand. Think about worrying that you wouldn't get picked at all. Think if you were Mary. He then describes Miss Mary. She wasn't pretty, smart, or athletic, Actually, when she was younger, she had polio, which left her partially handicapped. Bad legs, curled arms. One day, Daniel's teacher pulled him aside and asked him, Daniel, next time we have square dancing, I want you to choose Mary. He recalls, she may as well have told me to fly to Mars. It was an idea so new and so inconceivable that I could barely hold it in my head. Who would pick Mary when there was Linda or Shelley or Doreen? And then my teacher did a really rotten thing. She told me that it is what a Christian should do. I immediately knew I was doomed. I was doomed because I knew she was right. It was exactly the kind of thing Jesus would have done. The day came, and Daniel thought this, If God really loved me, he would make me last in line. Then, picking Mary will cause no stir. I will have done the right thing, and it won't have cost me anything. <laughs> Any guesses as to where he ended up? <laughs> yeah, first in line. Everyone was looking at him, waiting him, except for Mary. Who sat staring down at her desk. And Daniel was asked to choose his partner and he said, then I heard my own voice say, I choose Mary. Never has reluctant virtue been so rewarded. I can still see her face undimmed in my memory. She lifted her head and on her face, reddened with pleasure and surprise and embarrassment, was the most genuine look of delight that I have ever seen, before or since. Genuine look of delight. That is a fitting response and reaction for us. When we realize that God has called our name and said, I choose you. We're merry. We're crippled by our sin, bad hearts and bad legs, unlovely. And He lifts our heads and He makes us lovely. So let's lose, let's lose the delusions of, of grandeur that we have. Let's lose any sense of superiority to others. Let's lose the, the legalistic attitudes to say, I've got this. I'll get my life back together and get it pleasing to God again. Our only boast is in God's grace given to us in, in Christ. Christ. And unlike this boy in the story, God was not reluctant in loving you. He set his heart on you before the clock even started. And He did it all unasked, unforced, freely, and gladly. And it cost him greatly. And so now we can rightly ask, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray now, open our eyes, open our hearts to see your glory. May we respond appropriately with worship and awe before your throne. May we forever be grateful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.